So Cam, question. Let's say we lived on a planet where somehow living things were made up of little plastic bricks. Just like Legos, you could mix and match them and snap them and break them to make all sorts of things. For the sake of argument, let's say that the smallest bricks were about the size of a regular Earth-like protein. How would Darwin say that entities composed of these bricks would evolve? I think as a gradualist, he'd say if there was heritable variation and some combination of these bricks had a fitness advantage over other combinations, then through small additions and subtractions of bricks and enough time, natural selection would lead to complex groups of bricks, like maybe brick elephants and brick jellyfish and brick palm trees. Good, fair story. Darwin would be proud. But here's the important thing that Darwin's thinking misses. The only future thing any individual can be is an extension of that which came before. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) I don't think he missed that. Uh, That's just another way of saying there's dissent with modification. That was his focus, right? Leave it to you to say something so obvious and try to make it sound like it's profound. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. I have been accused of occasional hyperbole, but stick with me. What if instead of bricks, life on this fake world started with big globs of stuff, blobs of fatty acids, kind of like really little balls of grosser, greasier Play-Doh? How then would life evolve? Oh boy, I know there's a trick here, but I'm going to say the basic same way. Um, Eventually, after enough time, there'd be shapes and sizes of different species and In this case, they'd be made up of little fat Play-Doh instead of ultra-tiny Legos. In a general sense, that's probably right. But think about the rate and extent of extreme forms in such different systems. The force of gravity would be very different on a T-Rex made out of fat than one made out of bricks, right? Okay, I think I see where you're going. There could never be a big, fat, blobby T-Rex. Unless the fat blobs evolved into something more rigid, no species like that would ever get that big, unless it stayed in water. Yes, and this is the basic idea of inherency. The focus of our conversation today was Stuart Newman, a professor of cell biology at the New York Medical College. Stuart says that the natural physical propensities of living matter enable systems to evolve differently than Darwin and other gradualists would have us believe. Just like the dipole of a water molecule allows it to absorb a lot of heat before it changes temperature, The materials that compose life on Earth imbue them with particular abilities to stay viable and exploit opportunities. Okay, wait. Isn't that just a fancy way of saying constraint? That evolution can only follow a path based on what a lineage presently has and elaborating on the things that came before? I mean, we'll never find a lineage of sea cucumbers with backbones, no matter how long we look, because new species have to be variants on a theme. They have ancestors. And on a similar note, You and Art always talk about body size constraints. Life forms and processes are limited just because of simple surface-to-volume relationships. I think we already know that stuff. Do we need a new name for it? Well, Stewart says yes, and I kind of agree. If we think of size and phylogenetic history just as limits on life, we might miss a potentially major factor in life's evolution. Just because the first life on Earth was made of micelles, little orbs of fat molecules, major evolutionary changes were possible. New morphological and even functional doors were opened just because life was originally composed of fatty acids and not little plastic bricks. Okay, let's hear from Stuart himself on this. As you'll hear, I was a bit skeptical on some points, but it was a super interesting conversation. On today's show, we talk with Stuart about the potential role of inherency in evolution based on work he and others have done with placozoans. 
Placozoans are an extant lineage of organisms made up of just six to nine cell types that probably resemble the ancestors of all modern animals. Stewart says that the physical characteristics of these lineages have had really important ramifications for how evolutionary processes have unfolded. Let us know what you think. I'm Cameron Gallenbor. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. Thank you so much for joining us on um, Big Biology. It's really exciting to uh, to talk to you about a paper that you wrote not too long ago on inherency and agency in the origins and evolution of biological functions. Um, I think your main motivation, you wrote about it in the abstract as such, was to question a central aspect of evolutionary biology, the adaptationist selected effects notion of biological function. So that's a heavy-duty concept, I think. Can you tell us what this selected effects notion is and what's wrong with the sort of perspective about that in, uh, in theory so far? Yes, so um, uh, it's come out of uh, philosophy of biology, uh, but it, it relates to um, standard ideas and evolution. And it, it's the idea that if you, um, if you see a function uh, in an organism, like the um, ability of the heart to pump blood or the ability of the lungs to um, absorb oxygen, that this has come about over uh, long periods of evolution because the uh, organisms of the population were better adapted to some external challenges and they acquired that function in a, in a gradual stepwise fashion according to changes in their uh, genome, mainly genes of small effect iterated over many, many generations. And uh, the philosopher uh, Ruth Milliken kind of initiated this and she, she said proper functions are functions that have come up through that route and that there are um, what you might call functions of, uh, of organs like, like the heart's ability to make sounds. You know, we, we can use, doctors can use them, but those aren't proper functions. Those are maybe side effects or something because they haven't come up through uh, this kind of winnowing of uh, a natural selection. Uh, later on, uh, the philosopher Karen Deander um, called the, the selected effects uh, model or theory of, uh, of the evolution of functions. And uh, I took uh, issue with that. Uh, I, I've been looking at the evolution of morphology for many years. Um, my um, initial entry into biology was um, through limb development and, and looking at um, uh, physical mechanisms of uh, pattern formation and so on. I hadn't really uh, thought too much about functional evolution, but uh, when I started looking into um, how uh, differentiation occurs in present day organisms and also um, in, uh, in the difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes, between uh, metazoans and other eukaryotes, it, it really struck me that um, some ideas about differentiation that had been long held were um, also flawed. So, Stuart, I um, I read the paper and and I was actually I wasn't familiar with a lot of the the philosophical background on um, uh, on on form and function, and um, and 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 I was kind of you know pleasantly surprised by how how rich and what I thought was a relatively straightforward simple uh perspective that 
form refers to physical like structures like bone, muscle, heart that you were mentioning, uh, but even cells and uh, that, you know, you you look at these structures and you uh, you can infer uh, something about uh, their function, uh, you know, what they do, what they contribute to, if it's muscle, how it contributes to running, um, you know, what other measure of performance. But but then, you know, as somebody who works primarily at the whole organism level, I, I, I was also still struggling with trying to see why this kind of more standard, maybe simplistic view of form and function is really problematic for for you know people who work at the whole organism level um, because I think it's a very common assumption for us. Right. So um, looking at present day organisms, we, we have uh, extant forms like sponges and phagozoans and everything that it, we can't call them ancestors, but we can infer backwardness and uh, looking at the fossil record and looking at the, uh, the genealogy of the genes. We can say that um, the uh, the earliest metazoans, the earliest animals, um, were, were something like placozoans, uh, which are kind of sandwich-like, quite simple um, organisms, and, and, and sponges, which are, are labyrinthine, relatively simple morphologies. Um, and, we, and we can say that uh, the earliest animals were clusters of cells that took on certain forms, and they had uh, cell types, but they didn't have many cell types. And um, sponges have, I think, about 18 cell types. Uh, Placozoans, um, some people say six, some people say nine, um, but they're, they're much simpler. And uh, then you could ask about those um, uh, presumptively or earlier organisms. Uh, what were their functions, what these cell types uh, bring to them. And they brought things like motility and uh, the ability to absorb nutrients from the environment. But uh, particularly if you look at the placozoans, you can see that um, the cells are not organized into tissues um, and there are no tissues that are uh, forming organs, but um, there are cellular functions like uh, the fluttering of cilia, for example, that for a cell, cells often don't have exposed cilia. The, the exposed cilia comes in with, uh, uh, with more complex organisms, but uh, cilia are uh, kind of uh, inversions of uh, intracellular uh, structures. Um, so uh, placozoans have them on the outside and they, they move around uh, through the environment uh, using cilia uh, in a concerted way. Uh, there are these waves of cilia that act like flocks of birds, and they um, they create this concerted movement, which you can understand by physical models. Um, so you can you can see uh, how um, cellular, what I call functionalities, uh, things that cells do, uh, are um, kind of recruited uh, or appropriated in the multicellular system to do more complex functions. We want to dwell on the 
Placazoans, I mean, this, this sponges as well, but really the Placazoans, you make some fantastic cases about, you know, the, the potential steps by which this happened and, and how complexity may have emerged from these inherencies. But uh, not too long ago, Cam and our other co-hosts of the show, Art Woods, they spoke with Nick Barton um, about many different things, but one of the main themes was uh, Ronald Fisher's infinitesimal model. And I think you mentioned that in your paper. The basic idea in the model is that most traits are determined by many, many genes of small effect. Um, what, did, what did he say that meant for evolution? And what is your perspective on the infinitesimal model given the, you know, the, the ideas of, of cellular dispositions? So Fisher was basing his, uh, his ideas and his mathematical models on uh, Darwin's theory of natural selection was a very clever theory. It said that you can get um, arbitrarily complex forms by building them up little by little um, and uh, over long periods of time. And um, let, let's, let's say, let's hypothetically say that uh, you have an organism that changes radically into another organism. Um, what's the trajectory between, between the two? Well, Darwin, as a gradualist, trajectory, and he says that there's variation, and organisms are a little bit different, and then if they're uh, more prevalent in the next generation, that's a step to become a little bit different from that, and so on, and you have this continuous trajectory. So that, that's basically the infinitesimal model is like a, a mathematical rendition of, of that idea. But in fact, developmental biology shows us that with uh, small changes in, in the genome, you can have very large changes in morphology, and, and you can have large changes in even function. So uh, you, you can have genes of large effects. And um, then the question becomes, could those survive? If you have a population with some extreme outlier because of some developmental change, and Darwin knew about these things. He called them sports, and he considered them just random occurrences that there was no rhyme or reason to. He couldn't explain them, and he said that they really didn't contribute to evolution. Uh, and that's uh, Fisher's position. Fisher uh, had another paper called The Geometric Model, and he said that uh, the mathematics of natural selection don't work if you have big changes because they're not tolerated uh, by the population and that the population is, is living in. So um, but those two things together are very much in keeping with Darwin's model. But I think that uh, uh, bringing uh, development into evolutionary theory uh, changes the whole terrain. Hmm. I kind of want to push back a little bit on that because I think, you know, the idea with the geometric model is really more that if a population is close to its kind of adaptive peak, then any any mutation of large effect is going to have a, a, a negative deleterious effect and kind of push them further away from that optimum. Um, but I think what you're talking about is more at a sort of macro evolutionary scale um, as opposed to sort of that, that kind of local micro evolutionary scale that um, both the infinitesimal model and the geometric model are are kind of more concerned with. And I, you know, I see, I see this a lot in um, both historically and currently that there's a, a long history of skepticism about the importance of natural selection uh, acting on 
uh, continuous variation on on genes of many small effect. And I and I guess to me one of the problems here is and and when we want to when I think when we want to incorporate development into evolutionary theory is that we have to also be cognizant of uh, the mechanisms that are associated with with generating variation. So genetic changes, developmental programs, some of which can have, without a doubt, large, large effects, rapid effects with the process of selection, which is just acting on the variation that is available to it. Um, I don't see the process of selection kind of as a as a creative force uh, here. It's it's just acting with whatever variation genetics and development uh, and physiology and behavior kind of put out there. So how, how do you see these two sets of processes, the processes that generate the variation versus the process of selection acting on that variation? Okay, so um, let's say that we have uh, some large effect change, and this could come about by um, maybe the import of a, a, of a new gene into a, a lineage. Uh, you have some lateral transfer, and you, this happens with uh, the head crest of pigeons. Um, that you have um, different lineages of pigeons, and they have introgression of, uh, of a particular gene, and then they get the head crest instantly. Um, uh, so it could happen that way, or it could happen by um, uh, the environment changing, uh, and uh, different rates of uh, existing uh, uh, processes uh, change in relation to each other, and then you get some developmental uh, alteration that gives you uh, a new morphology. So there are many ways that you can get jumps, and then well, the population is faced with uh, whether these things are going to survive or not. Okay, so um, it might be that variant groups can form, uh, you know, by um, Sympatric selection. You can have um, the, the possibility of uh, compatib compatible um, subpopulations within um, a, a given uh, environment. That, that's possible. Or organisms can kind of strike out on their own. If this happens uh, to a group of organisms, uh, that somehow uh, their um, uh, particular genome makes them susceptible to an environmental change so that you have a novel subgroup with novel properties, they can stake out a different niche. Um, uh, this happens in, in plants a lot. Uh, and and the, uh, the, the organisms are quite different from their parental population, and they just stake out a new niche. And, they, and, and this is where um, I kind of bring concept of agency into um, evolution, and other people have too. Um, organisms don't just kind of sit there and say, well, I'm not really good enough for this niche that I've uh, risen. I'm just going to stay here and die. They'll just kind of explore the environment and find some way of, uh, of kind of mobilizing their new properties so that they can, um, they can survive. And uh, living systems have this drive to, uh, uh, to, to kind of uh, prosper. Um, so uh, Richard Lewinton uh, talked about the organism as the um, object and subject of um, evolution. And um, it seems to me that the, um, the kind of standard natural selection idea says, here you have some novelty, the organism is sitting there as an object of selection, just doesn't kind of uh, 
comport with uh, the originating population's um, adaptation to its niche, so it just dies uh, because it's, the effect is too large. But the uh, organism as the subject of evolution says, uh, well, look, uh, you know, I'm, I'm bipedal and my uh, cohorts are not, you know, so what am I going to do with it? I'm just going to walk to a different place and, and be a different kind of organism. So, um, so basically, that's, that's the idea that developmental processes, if modified in various ways, can give you new kinds of organisms. And then the question is, are the organisms um, content to um, just be selected the way their cohorts are, or will they just um, become new kinds of organisms by founding new niches? You know, I mean, I know Cam has strong feelings about the concept of agency, um, as do I. But we we come at different, <laughs> we come at that from different sides. Um, maybe we can say a little bit more about agency in a minute. But what I'm hearing you to say, Stuart, is that you know, I think Cam's question was whether selection could be a generative force, like you know, where the variation, where this new stuff is coming from. And I'm I'm sort of hearing you say that it's kind of what what Cam was talking about that where the variation comes from is going to be from other processes. And you, you named a lot of them, but it's not so much that selection is generating the new force. Selection is acting as some sort of a filter. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, maybe let's turn then to this getting into the, to the details about, you know, this, the sources and kinds of this variation and this, this word of word inherency that, uh, we've mentioned a couple of different times. Um, you say that, uh, Multicellular aggregates, uh, particularly those in plants and animals during development, have evolutionarily important natural physical propensities, physical propensities, due to their nature as biological matter. And this made the acquisition of morphological motifs almost inevitable. So I think that's a beautiful sentiment and yet complicated. Can you explain what that is and how that means inherency? Sure. So um, I'll, first I'll use a simple uh, physical analogy. So if you look at... Um, uh, water molecules. Water molecules have certain properties, but you wouldn't say water molecules have waves or whirlpools or anything like that. They're, they're just molecules. But if you put them together, forces, um, kind of chemical van der Waals forces and so kind of make them cohere. And uh, then you have liquid water. And um, liquid water can, can just be a drop or it can be a kind of a still surface. But if you disturb it a little bit, it can um, generate waves or it can generate whirlpools or it can generate um, vortices of, of, of kind of chaotic nature. So um, there are various uh, inherencies of liquid water that you wouldn't have necessarily predicted from molecular water. And uh, water at certain temperatures can also freeze. Uh, it's very difficult to make a, a branched structure from liquid water, but if you have frozen water, it, it organizes into uh, crystals like snowflakes and, and branches and so on. So um, different uh, forms of matter have different inherencies, and um, the inherencies create a morphous space. Um, so um, if you look at um, water, you can't say that it's all those things at the same time but you can put it under different conditions and it will express those different forms. Now, now when you look at um, uh, animals, for example, 
a, um, arose from cells that are called oozoans. Oozoans are um, a lineage um, of single-celled organisms or transiently multicellular organisms, or, and, or they include animals. And um, when the um, metazoans, which are the uh, animal branch of the oozoan lineage, emerged, the cells became attached to each other by uh, a protein that was uh, newly acquired, newly evolved in some way. Uh, these are the, um, the, the coherence, the classical coherence. And they allow cells to remain attached to each other and at the same time move relative to each other. So when you have um, a material whose subunits are sim simultaneously changing position but remaining coherent, that has liquid-like properties. Contrast it to plants. If you look at plant cells, they have a solid matrix, cellulose, that uh, connects them to each other, and they're not moving relative to each other. Those types of materials have different inherencies. And um, you could predict ahead of time by looking at um, aggregates, animal cell aggregates, that if um, you had subgroups that were differentially cohesive, that you would get layers. Or if you had subunits that had polarity, you could get cavities inside the, the massive tissue. So basically there are inherencies that came about when this material first appeared on the face of the earth that had certain inherencies. And if you wanted to ask, how could it evolve? You can make changes to it if you maintained its nature but made small changes, what could happen? Well, not everything could happen, um, but some things could happen, and it could take you into different realms. It could, you could get segmented structures, you could get hollow structures, you could get structures with appendages, you could uh, get structures that had internal hard skeletal structures, you could get organisms that had external hard skeletal structures, and so on. So if you could almost generate the whole panoply of um, animal forms by looking at the inherencies of the original metazoan aggregates. So I find this idea really fascinating, Stuart, but, but Cam and I have talked, you know, we prepare for these episodes, and one of the things that came up in our conversation, and I think it was a great point, so Cam, I'm going to speak for you. I'm just going to steal your thunder. <laughs> okay. um, why is this not a constraint? Like, what's the difference between physical constraint versus inherency because of, you know, the, the underlying physics. Is there a difference there that's important? Well, um, I think that a constraint says that it's a limiting factor. If something is an enabling factor, like I, if, if I told you that a, a mass of tissue, if you just kind of retuned some of the um, adhesive and, and uh, metabolic um, components, you could get segments. Would you say, well, um, segmentation is a constraint of a massive tissue? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> I think also, like in the in the evolutionary literature, you know, the the term bias is also uh, also used kind of in the same context. That a bias may may act as a constraint, but it also may um, enable certain outcomes over others. And Perhaps inherency then is is kind of capturing both sides the 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 bias enabling side and the 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 preventive side as well. 
So if I understand you correctly, you know, inherency seems to be a very important concept because it means that the cells have certain properties uh, that pre predispose them to make these particular types, I think, of structures. I think you refer to these as motifs, which in turn are then modified during the evolutionary process. However, unlike water molecules, the cells have their own evolutionary history and they have the ability to be dynamic and plastic depending on the environmental context or I think, you know, in reading your work in the, the type of organism that they're found in. So we, we think a lot about that type of context dependency uh, in the framework of phenotypic plasticity. And I'm, I'm curious how you see inherency related to the concept of plasticity. Yes, well, I think that it's very related. Um, if you look at the, um, uh, the capabilities or the inherencies of any uh, massive tissue, then you could say under what circumstances will one or another of the inherencies uh, be manifested, be, be expressed. And sometimes you can um, take a, a particular organism and put it in a new environment and it, it will manifest it. So if you look at our bodies, if you put us in water and you, um, you have turbulence and so on, our bodies don't change shape. If you take a jellyfish and you put it in water, its body changes shape. So basically, the physical properties of its body accommodate to the environment um, in a way that ours don't. Uh, we have uh, ways of resisting those forces, those uh, simple forces in the environment. But if you look at the um, developmental process, you could look at how segments are formed, for example. Segments are formed by uh, some oscillating gene expression process uh, and that gets coupled with growth. And if growth has uh, a certain pace and the oscillation has a certain pace, you'll get a certain number of segments. And that, that uh, segmentation number is characteristic of uh, whether it's a mouse or a human, which has a couple of dozen segments, or a snake, which might have a couple of hundred segments. But you can take organisms like centipedes, and they have a certain number of body segments, and you can change the temperature. And the number of segments will be different at different um, positions on a climb, on a temperature so there's a, a kind of a modulation, and that's plasticity, that's modulating some inherency to make the organism different under different circumstances. Okay. I want to come back, though, Stuart, to something that you said at the beginning, now that we've defined inherency in, in a more explicit way, and we've talked through some other things. One of the first things that came up was, was function, these proper functions of Millikan. So in the context of, you know, inherency in generating morphological novelty, I, I can follow that. But what's a little bit less intuitive is inherency and function. Can you, can you get us there? I mean, how, what are examples of inherency leading to Milligan's proper functions? Sure. Um, well, it, it wouldn't necessarily be a proper function uh, in her sense, because her sense of proper function is one that has arisen by natural selection. Okay, good point, yeah. But I would say that um, if, if we just look at things that um, our bodies do, like we have muscles uh, that contract and allow us to uh, locomote um, or, or 
if they're smooth muscle, they may allow us to convey food down our digestive tract. Um, where did the muscles come from? Um, and if you look at single-celled organisms, particularly the holozoan cells that gave rise to the animals, they have contractile functions. Uh, cells uh, have amoeboid motion. And if you look at the amoeboid motion inside a single cell, it's mediated by actin and myosin, two, two proteins, and a number of accessory proteins like tropomycin. Uh, and if you look at muscles, both uh, skeletal and smooth muscle, and also cardiac muscle, the same uh, proteins are involved, the ancestral proteins, but now they're involved in specialized cell types uh, and tissue types. So what's happened is that those cells differentiate. They, they give up certain properties that are common to um, um, most other cells or even with the ancestral cells. So for example, Ancestral cells use those um, uh, cytoskeletal proteins to divide and to multiply um, into more cells. Skeletal muscle doesn't do that. It, it gives up the ability to divide. Um, nerve cells uh, are other differentiated sometimes that don't divide. So uh, what's happened here is that they're part of a more complex organism and they're kind of carried along and sustained by circulation system, other things. They don't have to divide to, um, to keep going. Uh, and they, they have a specialized function now that's an appropriation of this ancestral contractile function. But now it is um, in the service of a more complex organism that is sustaining that tissue type uh, in ways that it can't sustain itself. So it gives up something and it's appropriated something. One thing that I'm having a, a little bit of a difficult time with is, well, can you say something more specific about the original roles or what was it about actin and myosin or proteins like that that sort of has this, this flavor of inherency? Because if there's sort of eventually, you know, there's sacrifices made by those cells that eventually evolved to become muscle cells. Now they can do contraction, which used to be used in amoeboid cells for locomotion. Where, does the, where did the inherency initially come in? Because the inherency part isn't really there. There's a legacy, an evolutionary legacy, when we go from single cell to multicellular amoeboid to... to but what, what was the inherency, the very first step of inherency with actinomycin? So that I, I don't know. I, I, there, uh, in, in all of the things I've written about this, I, I try to make it clear that I don't know um, how cells evolve. There are people that study the origin of life, the origin of cells, and there are people, particularly philosophers, that talk about things like autopoiesis or uh, the organi organizational um, approach of uh, Moreno and Mosio. Uh, people talk about those things. There are very few molecular models of how that works, but um, it's very clear that cells are self-sustaining systems that interact with the environment. Uh, that's that's not my area. My area is is the evolution of multicellular organisms. And when I talk about inherency there, I'm not saying that the function of actin and myosin in single cells is, is an inherent process. But if, if I ask how did multicellular animals first acquire the ability to have specialized cell types 
that allow the whole organism to locomote, to, to move around. Um, what I have concluded uh, is that um, they did it by appropriating inherent properties of cells. Now, what are inherent properties of cells are motility. So motility is a property of cells. Absorption is a property of cells. Excitability, um, the ability to bind oxygen, the property of cells, the ability to detoxify, the property of cells. So when you look from the point of view of a multicellular organism, and you say, what, do I, what can I use based on what I, I'm made of that will allow me to do new things? Well, there are inherencies of cells that I can appropriate to become tissues and, and cell types. Let's move to the placosomes. Um, I just love some of the, the word choices that, that you have in this in this paper. So you talk about the placozoans as um, a potential ground state of animal identity. What does that mean? And maybe connect it to the points that you're making about you know the, the different cell functions that have been uh, embellished in modern forms. So it's important to realize that the different kinds of animals, and, and particularly the uh, what has been identified historically as the phyla, actually have objective differences from each other. The sponges and the uh, placozoans are often called basal metazoans. I, I think that's not a good term because um, these are extant modern-day forms. They're not basal to anything. So there's another term that's used, which are called parazoans. They're in contrast to the eumetazoans. The eumetazoans are um, things like chordates and, and, and mollusks and uh, arthropods and so on. So the, those are all eumetazoans. And, and even uh, there's a kind of an intermediate, like hydra, hydarians, and, and there are tenophores, uh, which are called comb jellies. Um, those are, uh, they're eumetazoans, but they're um, diploblasts. They, they only have two layers. They're not triploblasts. They don't have three layers. And if you look at what's the objective differences between these different classifications, you find that there are certain genes that um, are present beginning with the um, Nigerians and Tenophores that allow um, layers of cells, which we call epithelia, to sit on a surface called the basement membrane. And the enzyme that produces the basement membrane from uh, collagen. Collagen is a very ancestral molecule. It's present in all animals. But the collagen does not polymerize into a surface, into a substratum, until you get an enzyme called uh, peroxidasin, which only comes in with, um, uh, with the diploblasts. Okay, so it's a little, little bit technical here, but um, uh, the point is that there are new genes that um, kind of seem to appear suddenly. And uh, they may have had a, a, a gradual evolutionary uh, trajectory. There's no evidence that they have been uh, laterally transferred from other organisms. So they, they, they just are not found anywhere but in the new organisms that have them. And um, in the case of animals like us, uh, triploblast, things like fibronectin didn't exist in earlier forms. And that's an extracellular matrix that's important for our connective tissues and so on. Things like um, hydra don't have connective tissues, but 
but triploblastic organisms like us have connective tissues, and that is accompanied by new genes that perform functions that were not present in the earlier forms. So getting getting back to the question about um, placozoans uh, being the basal metazoans, they have um, basically uh, two layers of cells. They're epithelial-like layers. Uh, it's a top layer and a bottom layer, but they don't have basement membranes. So they're not they're not what we call true epithelia. They're, they're kind of uh, flimsier, much flimsier, and they can't make they can't put out appendages. They can't make limbs. They can't make um, uh, even even um, kind of hairs or uh, projections. Uh, they, they just can't. You need um, you need a basement membrane to, to make appendages. So they're just two flat layers, but they're covered with cilia, and the cilia are present in ancestral cells. So they didn't have to evolve uh, de novo in the placozoans. They were already there. They're just appropriated but they do new things in the placozoans um, because they're acting in a kind of a concerted wave-like fashion. They're doing things that were never uh, foreseen in the individual cells in which the cilia first evolved. So, so the thing is that um, when you get onto the multicellular scale, you can appropriate ancestral functionalities to do completely new things just because of uh, the scale, it's like the, the molecular water, when it finds itself as part of a, a drop of water or a body of water, it can do new things, it can make waves and, and so on that, that, that weren't possible before. So if I can like jump in um, and, and kind of ground this in a, in a particular species of placozoan. So there's uh, Trichoplax adherens is, is the species. And so this is a, a very small placozoan, maybe only a millimeter long. Um, as you mentioned, it has like these two epithelium layers and is only made up of like six or nine cell types. And, and so you were talking about the cilia, you know, I'm very curious then, like what, what else do we know about the origin of these different cell types before they show up in trichoplax. Can you talk about like other cells and their, their functions and um, like what their kind of like evolutionary history is prior to showing up in placozoans? Do we, do we have a, a kind of a phylogeny of these individual cell lines that goes back to the unicellular uh, ancestors? Uh, yes. The very interesting thing I just want to say about the placozoans though is that um, they're, they're... Lots of people, or several groups, um, that that look at the genetics and relate them to the genetics of um, non-animal holozoans. And um, one of the most prominent things about the uh, the metazoans, the animals, is the use of enhancers um, to uh, amplify gene expression. And um, Enhancers are not universal in all eukaryotic cells. Um, they're, they're really used in a very special way in the animals, and they uh, congregate in these, these expression hubs for um, amplified genes in, in the animals, and they're um, kind of central to the development of cell types. And it turns out that um, nobody's ever found enhancers in placozoans. So placozoans... Um, have specialized cell types 
but they're they're kind of um, they're very primitive. The, the specialization is is kind of the overproduction of certain molecules. So the placozoans have digestive cells, um, which means that they um, they have degradative enzymes that they secrete into the environment that are similar to our digestive enzymes in some way, and they're similar to um, to pre-existing um, uh, lytic enzymes that, that were made by single-celled organisms, but they're not um, they're not digestive cells like we have digestive cells, and, and um, uh, they're not as complex, and uh, they're just kind of the overexpression of certain genes. So there's a kind of uh, an abortive attempt at differentiation in placozoans. And it's a bit of a controversy as to whether placozoans are a, a form uh, that was from a, kind of a more complete metazoan repertoire that, that just lost um, the ability uh, to use enhancers or something, uh, or if they, in fact, are, are uh, the primitive state. Um, but in any case, placozoans don't really have genuine cell types the way even um, sponges do. Because sponges do use um, enhancers, and all other um, all other metazoans use enhancers. Um, the other thing about placozoans is that there's a pathway that's um, also almost universal in the animals called the Notch pathway, and the Notch pathway is very important in creating the patterns of cell types that we see in tissues and organs. So. Uh, the notch pathway, if the cell expresses uh, one a component of the notch pathway, it will interact with a nearby cell and say, don't do what I'm doing, just do something different. Um, it kind of suppresses the uh, adjacent cell from uh, following the same route as the notch uh, expressing cell. And uh, placozoans are missing some components of the notch pathway. It's not that they don't have it at all, but they don't have it. Uh, they don't have it as efficiently and don't use it as well. And this is also um, in, uh, an impairment in the ability of placozoans to take whatever cell types they have and turn them into um, organized tissues. Um, and um, even sponges have some aspect of organized. Tissue is not it's not as advanced as it is in diploblasts uh, and so on, but it's it's there, but it's it's less there in, in the placozoans. So they're def deficient in a number of things, and it's not clear whether they uh, their ancestors never had it, or, or their ancestors never um, uh, or their uh, ancestors lost it. Um, in, in any case, with the placozoans, they have um, some um, cells that are crystal cells that um, uh, form uh, little um, crystalline inclusions that allow a kind of gravity sensation. So they're, they're, they're kind of a primitive form of a, a sensory cell. And they also have um, kind of a primitive neuro um, synaptic uh, types of components. They, they don't form they don't have nerves, uh, they don't form synapses, but they have um, cell types that have um, some excitatory um, 
functions that uh, you can see are the ma makings of what eventually became uh, nerve cells in, in other um, uh, more evolved metazoans. Uh, yeah. So this is this is really cool, and I have so many questions about placozoans, um, and especially what you were talking about a minute ago with the evolution of this enhancer um, sort of scenario for gene regulation. However, um, we'll have to save that for another time because I, I want to get us, I want to stay in this area of inherency, and I want to bring in a new player to this conversation. I mean, literally new in the evolutionary sense because uh, this guy, Mike Levin at Tufts University and his colleagues literally invented these new forms of, of life, what they call biobots and you you tell a really compelling story and in full disclosure mike has been a repeat guest on this show so we're really really big fans of, of mike's work but how do you understand inherency i mean what, what kinds of inherency have you seen in in these biobots maybe for the listeners that didn't hear their, didn't hear those shows or don't know mike's work tell us a little bit about what these biobots are right it's it's remarkable work and i'm also mike's work on that and also on the uh electrical field um, scaffolding of structures. Yeah, it's really brilliant work. Um, so with the biobots, um, what they do is that they take cells from um, frog embryos, Oedipus embryos, from the, um, it's called the animal cap, and it's a homogeneous population of cells, and they um, dissociate them, and they re-aggregate them into spheroids. And uh, spheroids, have externalized cilia. So basically, spontaneously, they take structures that might uh, be active internally in the animal cap cells, but uh, they get externalized. And these little spheroids can kind of scoot around, and they can find their way through mazes and things like that. And this is nothing that they do when they're part of the frog embryo. Uh, frog embryo, they may have these capabilities Inherently, but those capabilities are suppressed in the service of uh, certain stages of frog development. So um, they're not doing that. But here they're put in a completely new context. They haven't undergone any kind of uh, Darwinian selection, but they're just um, uh, cells that are in a new context. They're given sources of nutrients, which they navigate towards. Um, so they act like organisms that never existed before. So yeah, I wanna I wanna really drive this home, Stuart, because I, I think you know that what we've been talking about with holozoans and placozoans, this is great. This is what happened on the planet. But this is really amazing because these cells have never had the opportunity evolutionarily to exist as these entities. And yet when you put bunches of them together, you said they navigate mazes. How is that? These are just embryonic frog cells. Can, can you say more about how Mike found that to be the case? Well, I, I think that they just observe things carefully and then they set up challenges to see if they can meet the challenges. They, they've done similar things with Physarum. Physarum is a slime mold, which is, uh, but um, I would say, and I think uh, Mike Levin would agree, that their ability to do this is based on the fact that individual cells have an agency of their own. They have uh, what, what has been called primitive cognition. They, they basically um, um, exist in the world as living entities and um, they're not simply passive. It's not like if you take a, a cell type, an individual cell, 
and put it in a new place, it will instantly die because it's never seen it before. It'll figure out how to get away from toxins. It'll figure out how to get to something that might sustain its, its life. Living things um, have this impulse to live and survive. And that's what um, people call agency. And uh, agency doesn't have to be reinvented every time there's an evolutionary step uh, towards more complexity. So uh, it's, it's basically appropriated. Um, and it, um, in this case, um, these um, spheroids, they're made of cells. The cells have this impulse to survive and, and to nourish uh, themselves, and they have the capability of doing it. So um, basically, agency is one of the inherencies of, um, of living cells. And do we, can we explain it? No. As I said, there are philosophers that have been pondering over it, but um, I, I haven't tried to explain it. But I've tried to see how it it works when it's placed in a new context. The new context can be the experimental context of the, the biobots, or the new context can be some uh, novelty that has uh, arisen through the inherencies of, of the multicellular tissue. So, Stuart, I, I, I kind of want to maybe push back a little bit on that because Levin's work with these biobots is, is, is really phenomenal. But I guess my, um, it, my, my confusion here is that um, these cells um, have a, obviously a, an evolutionary history that we've talked about. Um, and, and it's true, historically, they're, the environment and the context that they occurred in was, was embedded within the tissue of a frog. But released from that context in the in the in this new sort of environment of the biobot, the because of uh, this evolutionary history, uh, the cells are essentially have a, a form of plasticity. And so, I guess what I call the the capacity for being plastic is what you're referring to as as agency. Um, how 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 are those two different from each other? Plasticity versus agency. Yeah, in this case, I mean, uh, you you take the cell out of the the historical context. I mean, it's still a a, a, a biological you know entity, and um, it has amazing uh, complexity that reflect you know its its long evolutionary history. And so, in this new kind of environment, you know, without having to, I guess, invoke any kind of a primitive cognition or anything. Um, I'm, I'm sure that if you put any kind of cell in other kinds of context, uh, they would do different kinds of things, just again, based on the mechanisms that are, are currently present within the cell. Right. So plasticity, um, you could define plasticity to include behavioral plasticity and then you're basically overlapping with the concept of agency. But if plasticity was simply, um, if I take a, a cell and the cell normally has a cuboidal shape in, in an embryo and I put it on a flat surface, an adhesive surface, and then it becomes flat, well, I'd say that's morphological plasticity. 
I, I wouldn't call that agency. So um, plasticity um, is by analogy to, to certain physical processes. Um, if you look at uh, water and say that it, uh, it's, a, it's a, a material with plasticity, it could form waves or it could form whirlpools or it could be still or just flat. Well, that's uh, physical plasticity. Uh, I wouldn't call it agency. Um, so um, cells really have this uh, kind of impulse to stay alive. And uh, it sounds vitalistic, and uh, I'm not a vitalist, but uh, I understand that um, there are certain things about cells that we don't, um, we, we don't really have a, a good uh, molecular and biochemical explanation for now. So um, you could kind of bracket that as a kind of uh, practical uh, vitalism, but not a not a, a commitment to vitalism. Yeah, I think I mean from a from an evolutionary sort of biology perspective, you know, we 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 broadly define plasticity as just saying the capacity for any like genetic background to change its phenotype, whatever that phenotype might be. It could be behavior, it could be morphology, uh, it could be physiology uh, in response to the environment and that it, it is a, uh, a predictable response to the environment. It's not a random response to the environment. And so uh, if you go to a population and, and you see that different individuals exhibit different responses to the same environmental cue, then then we kind of think about that as a, a genotype by environment interaction. And it's that variation that that selection acts on. And so, um, you know, I think at the cellular level, I could imagine that in the past, cells that didn't respond in particular ways uh, that were maybe adaptive to the environment would have, you know, been been eliminated. And those that that did persisted. And, and we see their sort of uh, offspring <laughs> uh, living today in, in, in modern organisms. So, so let, let me push back against that. So uh, if you have um, a population uh, and the population uh, cells have uh, kind of little uh, algorithms or computers in them that, um, that have been evolved um, according to the history of the species, to make the cells do a certain thing, then you could say the cells are little automata and um, they may respond differently like a slime mold uh, amoeba, uh, a Tetiostelian amoeba, will uh, see a gradient of cyclic AMP and navigate um, up that gradient towards the, the high point. But certain cells in that population won't and they're not necessarily eliminated. Maybe they don't have that computer in, in, in them in, in the fully evolved form, but um, they remain in the population and they, the difference can't be attributed necessarily to genetic differences. Cells just um, have different behavioral modes. Uh, there was a recent study of fireflies and it was thought that um, fireflies blinked in synchrony because of um, some uh, mathematical property of some internal oscillator. Uh, and that uh, if they are part of that um, collective that's, that is blinking in uh, synchrony, they'll blink in synchrony. And then they found that there are some fireflies that 
just don't do it. And, uh, and um, their progeny could do it, but uh, they didn't do it. But, and um, basically organisms have uh, quirkiness to them. And the quirkiness is um, kind of associated with uh, just not following the crowd sometimes. Maybe that's kind of a pre-adaptation to uh, being able to exploit new environments if they turn up. So, but the thing is, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just uh, agency. Maybe organisms just have different tastes and propensities. Uh, it, it, it could be. I, I guess um, if you think about organisms, uh, whole organisms that live in ecologically uh, complex environments that are, that are shifting, having a diversity of... Uh, like personalities at the at the whole organism level, you know, different kinds of behaviors. Uh, some individuals might do better under certain conditions, and then other individuals do better under other conditions. And so, um, you can also maintain variation at a population level, you know, in response to kind of fluctuating environments that way. So, I think there's, you know, the, it's hard to know, obviously, and uh, but I, I I do think of it as a as a fascinating question to you know move from the level of uh, population of individual organisms to looking within a within the organism at a, at a population of cells or you know these different cell types that have to each have their own sort of uh, functions and, and as you use the term uh, the inherency that they bring but they but they also have to cooperate with one another at the at the tissue level or at the organ level, and then certainly at the whole organism level to 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 work together. And so, uh, to me, that's a that's also a very fascinating kind of uh, levels of selection kind of uh, problem. Right. Yeah. I, I would just question whether um, all this quirkiness is something. Uh, I think it's a kind of a. A kind of a matter of uh, almost a matter of faith to say that uh, uh, if you see some feature of an organism that doesn't seem to conform to the expectations of evolution, like the ability to, of birds to hybridize with each other, well, that, that kind of erases their species difference. Uh, so it seems to be kind of go against uh, standard evolutionary theory, but you create new species by hybridization. So um, are those propensities? Uh, specifically evolved, and, and what was the um, adaptive scenario uh, that led to them to be uh, discordant with the rest of the members of their population? Did, did all possible uh, adaptive scenarios existed to, to bring us to the point where all the latencies of possible futures are present in a, in a population by natural selection, or is there just uh, kind of an openness to uh, the nature of organisms. What you guys have been talking about in the last couple of minutes, it really relates well to something that Cam and I have been thinking about for over a decade. And the and the kind of bumper sticker version of this is whether organisms are, are in scare quotes, special as a level of biological organization. Now, let me try to frame that in, in the words that you used in your paper. You wrote about organizational closure and what you said was that the organizational closure is this emergent regime of causation such that constituents of a system constrain the operations of others, but also collectively maintain itself via mutual dependence. Beautiful. I love it. But here's my question. 
So cells and tissues, I think, clearly do that. We've been talking about that. It almost has to happen that way. Organisms probably do that. Do you think communities and populations do that? You started to speak about that with the hybridization example, but but if they don't do that, does it mean that organisms are this kind of special level or organization? So let me just say that um, that what you quoted my saying that that's not uh, the organizational closure comes from the uh, philosophical work of uh, of Aro Moreno and his colleagues, and uh, it's called the organizational approach and and uh, that that's something that um, I've uh, quoted and used in, in, in some of my work, but uh, it's it's not that's not my idea. Um, but um, I would say that um, organisms have this um, cohesiveness uh, to them, this internal cohesiveness, and it actually goes back to uh, the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who uh, who talked about. Um, organisms as natural purposes. He, he said that um, organisms uh, will produce the, the means for their uh, perpetuation in, in a way that we don't see anything in the uh, non-living world do. And uh, that, that idea, which Kant acknowledged that he couldn't explain, was uh, taken up by um, Maturana and Varela, two Chilean uh, philosophers in, in the concept of autopoiesis, and it's extended by uh, Moreno and his colleagues uh, in the organizational approach. So uh, this is quite important, and it characterizes organizations. People have tried to apply it to higher level entities, uh, like societies, ecosystems, and so on. And um, my feeling is that those are different kinds of of things. There are um, higher level things like uh, use social societies, insects um, that are organized uh, in, in a, a way that is uh, somewhat cohesive or quite cohesive. There are uh, flocks of birds uh, that uh, interact with each other in a way that looks like it's one cohesive entity and so on. My feeling about all this is um, I'm very anti-reductionist. So um, I believe in uh, different forms of matter, uh, and each form has its own inherency. But I also, I, I don't believe that these things are irretrievably separate from each other. Things like there are particles that form atoms. The atoms are different from the particles, but you can understand how the atoms um, emerged in the history of the universe from fundamental particles. So. So I'm not saying that um, there's no continuities between different forms of matter, but what I'm saying is that once you have a new form of matter, like the, uh, you know, the hundred plus atomic elements, they have inherent properties that are very different from anything that preceded them. And they're also things that build on them, like uh, cells and organisms are not reducible to the chemistry of the uh, the atomic elements, um, they are uh, dependent on it, they're based on it, but new features come in um, as you get new forms of matter. And I think that the um, animals are a different form of matter than the plants. I mean, we know that they had common ancestors at some point, but uh, they're different forms of matter with different inherencies, so they have different developmental properties. So if you talk about an ecosystem, um, there are certainly um, 
uh, kind of laws of um, organization, uh, thermodynamic uh, regularities. Uh, but I think that they're not reducible and not the same as the kinds of co coherencies and inherencies of individual organisms. Hmm. Interesting. So what about, what about the agency part of things? I mean, you, most of that argument was, was based on inherency, but like the reason that I, maybe I, I put up organisms, give, give them more credit than they're due, is that agency does seem to be concentrated at the organismal level, or is it, is it meaningful and fair to say that communities have agency as well? Well, there are people that say that, and I think that there, there's incipient agency in communities. Um, you know, maybe a beehive has, uh, uh, you know, has some kind of uh, agency, but it's not, it's not the same thing. And um, it's more loosely organized. And um, when um, multicellular organisms uh, evolved from um, single-celled organisms, you also had intermediate forms, things like cellular slime molds, where you have um, kind of transient uh, multicellular stages, things that kind of navigate around as a multicellular structure, like the slug of dictyostelium. Um, so these things, um, you could say that the slug of dictyostelium has agency, and the agency is somehow uh, based on a domestication of the agency of the cells that it's made of. And then it, um, it disperses again, it spores, and then the whole cycle starts uh, again. Um, so there are um, kind of more complex forms of agency, but they can be transient. And I think the, the, the mistake is to try to reduce one thing to another. It's, um, you, you have these uh, transiently new forms of matter, and they have new properties that you just haven't seen anywhere before. You can relate them to the properties of the things they're made of, but you can't reduce them to the properties of the things they're made of. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. That's well fed. <laughs> well, I think on that, I mean, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. Um, we always like to end by giving our uh, guests the opportunity to say something that, you know, anything else that you'd like to say that we haven't covered today? Well, I just think that people should be open-minded about plurality of evolutionary mechanisms. And I, I, I know that a lot of, uh, Evolutionary theorists are very loyal to Darwinian natural selection, and I think it obviously goes on. But I think uh, there are more things in the world than uh, than even Darwin contemplated. Good. Well, I think we'll end on that note, Stuart. Thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks as well to interns Dana De La Cruz and Kyle Smith for helping produce the episode. Kidding Shimeri produces our fantastic cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello.